do you respond when unbelievers aren't enthusiastic about your witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ? How should we handle such opposition? Can a common Christian be expected to explain the gospel to someone who is more knowledgeable in worldly things? Dr. John Whitcomb has been teaching the Bible and apologetics for many decades, and he utilizes that experience to answer those questions today on Encounter God's Truth. I'm your host, Wayne Shepherd, and we're in the middle of a sermon entitled The Necessity of God's Power as we continue a series on biblical apologetics. It was recorded live at Appalachian Bible College in Mount Hope, West Virginia, and Whitcomb Ministries thanks them for allowing us to bring you these messages. Today's lesson is vitally important in helping us learn how to share our faith with those who disagree and resist the message of God's grace. It goes into detail regarding the power source that influences unbelievers, namely Satan and his demons, and how they relate to history and prophecy. Please stay with us now and track with us in your own Bible if you can, as Dr. Whitcomb deals with these significant issues. We open with a short review from last time, looking at Isaiah chapter 64. And we all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away, and there is none that calleth upon thy name, that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee, for thou hast hid thy face from us, and hast consumed us because of our iniquities. Now this is Isaiah, probably the greatest Old Testament writing prophet, you see, uh, whose sin nature was judicially purged away in that confrontation with God in chapter 6, one of the most amazing encounters with the living God ever recorded. And it's Isaiah who says, we, our iniquities, not somebody else's. You all know Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart of man is what? Deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Like God said of the human race before the flood. And by the way, God makes it clear he didn't wipe out the human race except for one family for no real legitimate reason. God looked down upon the human race and saw that the, the iniquity of man was great. And that every thought of the intent of his heart was only evil continually. I'll give you my opinion on that. No human being, even with a fallen, sinful, depraved nature, can be that bad, that consistently, without demonic help. I think the whole pre-flood world was not only depraved, but demonized. That every thought of the intent of their heart was always evil. Always. Hmm. And so God, of course, I mean, my problem with the Genesis flood is not that God wiped out the human race. But that he waited hundreds of years for people to repent through the preaching of Noah. Because God is long-suffering, not what? Willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And Noah preached and proclaimed and warned and appealed, pled with people, come into the ark, there's a flood coming. And people laughed and laughed. And Jesus said, uh, in those days men were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, all of which is fine, except that's all they live for. Just feeding and multiplying and animals can do that too. And God did not do what? He didn't create human beings in his image and likeness to do nothing more than animals do. They had no thought for him, no response to his word, no interest whatever. And therefore, it said they understood not until Noah entered the ark and the flood came 
and destroyed them all. You say, isn't that a little bit uh, extreme? Did you know that many Christians are offended by the Genesis flood account? Maybe one billion people. You mean only one family was saved? Isn't that an overkill? <laughs> you know what's really amazing? I mean, I'm trying to be biblical. Would you pray for me? <laughs> the amazing thing that anybody was saved. <laughs> you say, well, no one his family were perfect. Oh, you know better. There were eight sin natures in the ark, which after the flood, what, proliferated and became what, total blasphemers in the Tower of Babel project, and later, of course, crucified Jesus, and someday the Antichrist will be also a descendant of that family. And we say, Lord, help me to see things from your perspective. The fact that you even put up with the human race at all is an astounding thing in Scripture in the light of what we are. And by the way, that's why God will never send another flood, because Genesis 8.21 says that God, God said, Never again will I destroy the earth as I have done, because man is what? Is wicked from his youth up. You say, well, that sounds like a good reason to have a global flood every hundred years. No, a thousand floods, a million, would never modify our sin nature. And so God said that was once and enough to demonstrate who's in charge of the universe and of the world. And I'm going to save the next flood till the fire comes at the end of the world. The fire flood. Well, friends, here we are. This is our problem. And I say, Lord, we have a sin problem. Even the uh, natural man however nice, receives not the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness to him, neither can he know them, they're spiritually discerned or praised. Romans 8, 7, even while we were sinners or enemies, Christ died for us. Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, what? There's no God, Romans 5, 8, and so forth. I mean, these passages, friends, totally destroy any little thought we may have had that we can be persuasive in changing people's minds about God and his word. Okay? Oh, but we have another problem. Not only sin, but who? Satan. Oh, my. Whenever you talk to an unsaved person, the Bible tells you this, but you're talking to at least two persons one of whom's invisible, and maybe more. And that invisible one is Satan, who's the god of this world. And you know, the Bible makes it so clear that uh, Satan has, uh, you know, enormous power. Turn to Ephesians 6, would you please? L listen to this. We learn in Ephesians chapter 2 that people walk according to the prince of the power of the air, who is the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Look at Ephesians 6, verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. By the way, he has all kinds of names. Satan, devil, uh, the prince, the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air. Listen to this. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, against mere human beings. Oh, you see, that's, a, that's rationalistic apologetics. Uh, 
I have better arguments than you have about God and the Bible. I win, you lose, you're now converted. I have heard of, I have attended a couple, creation evolution debates. And my friend Henry Morris and now the recently retired Dwayne Gish, I mean, he, these men are fantastic debaters. And they have won every debate. There have been hundreds of them in great major universities around the world, hundreds of them. I, I feel sorry for an evolutionist who uh, is going to debate Henry Morris or Dwayne Gish or these other men in the creation science movement who have memorized hundreds and hundreds of arguments. They know, they know better than the evolutionist does what his argument is going to be and how to answer them. They've never lost a single debate. Not one. Oh, yes, they lost one because the man outwitted them. He, did, he talked and talked and talked and never let them have a chance to answer. So he won. See, and most of them know they're going to be defeated and end up doing what? Using ad hominem arguments, insulting the creationist, you see, because they can't answer his arguments, his evidences. They're overwhelming. They're undeniable. But let me ask a question. How many of the evolutionists who are defeated say, look, that's it. Uh, I unconditionally surrender now to Jesus. Where's the nearest church? No. In fact, it's almost like they're hardened even more in their hatred against the God of the Bible, the God of creation. That's very mysterious. Okay? I'm not saying that a creation argument can't be used of God, as we shall see, God willing, tonight. To help people at least pay attention to some of the things you might have to say. And the best creation science debate scenario, in my opinion, is when you walk out the door of the auditorium after the debate's over with and somebody gives you a Gospel of John or a Bible tract or an invitation to a Bible study. And you say, well, uh, let me hear more. And you might use some of that wisely, you see, as a serpent. Harmlessly like a dove. To get people within the sound of the what? Of the Gospel. But the debate won't convert people. You sort of knew that, didn't you? It's hard for me to realize it, but, but dear friends, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, against mere debaters, against mere evolutionists, against mere atheists, but against what? Principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the what? The fiery darts of the wicked or the evil one. Second Corinthians 4.3, if our gospel be hid, if people can't see it, appreciate it, love the Savior you're telling about, it's because what? The God of this world has blinded them. They might not see the Christ, who's the light of the world. They can't, they, they can't see. I mean, Jesus talked, you know, in Matthew 13 about going forth, sowing the seed. And you say, well, now, wait a minute here. There's something unfair about this statement Jesus made because he said after the seed is sowing, sown, Satan comes and takes the seed away. My. It falls on hardened soil, irresponsible, irresponsive soil, and he takes it away. Uh, he blinds people. You say, well, that's not fair. That's a serious problem in the Bible. But men are responsible. It's like Pharaoh. 
Did God harden his heart? Did he harden his own heart? You see, there's a mysterious interaction. If you don't want the truth, you'll be further blinded. If you resist the word of God, Satan comes in and makes it even harder for you. And even harder. And even harder. And in rare cases in the lifetime of Jesus, and I think in the coming tribulation, people will be so hardened, they'll actually say of Antichrist miracles, they are from God, and they will take his mark on forehead and right hand, and they're doomed before they die. They've committed the unpardonable sin. Some could do that when Jesus was here. When they saw his miracles, they said what? They're from Satan. They blasphemed the Holy Spirit, who confirmed the identity of their Messiah with sign miracles. This is awesome, friends. Now, I think the only unpardonable sin in the church age is you just keep rejecting the gospel. Until, and it's never too late, until when? Until you're dead. Then it's over. You're done forever. God says, don't underestimate your enemy. Don't think you can manipulate him. You handle him. Outsmart him. No, no. Why, the greatest angel in the righteous angelic universe is Michael. He's the archangel. That means number one. He's, he's tops of righteous angels. And he was appointed by God on one occasion to protect the body of Moses in a distant remote region of the Dead Sea. Nobody ever saw him die. God buried him. And Satan came along to desecrate that body. Now, can you imagine the scenario here, friends? This is in light of the book of Jude, chapter 9, verse 9. Uh, let me imagine the interchange, okay? Satan comes and says to Michael, step aside, I'm taking that body. I hated Moses for 40 years and I'm going to destroy and desecrate the body. In the Old Testament times and in many parts of the world today, the way you were buried tells a lot about who you are. Did you know that? The body is precious to God. I mean, it's not essential. He, he can raise you from the dead without your body being visible. That's another issue. But um, Michael said, in effect, no, you can't. I mean, I was appointed by God just because he knew you would show up. You can't touch this body. And Satan says, well, you don't know who I am, do you? Did you know Satan is higher than Michael? Satan is the greatest creature in the universe. Read about him in Ezekiel 28. Oh, friends, Michael finally gave up arguing with a superior being. And he used presuppositional apologetics. Listen to this one. The Lord rebuke you, and that ended it. In other words, I can't handle you, but I know somebody who can. And I'm going to turn you over to my God. Goodbye. That's you. That is I. Lord, I can't handle this person. I need your divine help. I'm facing something vastly superior to any of my intellectual capacities to manipulate people. Help me to depend on you. You know what that is? That's an apologetic with power and passion. If you're going to have any effect on people, if you're going to be dynamic, irresistible, if you're going to win people to Jesus Christ forever and ever, you better be locked into a power system that is greater than yourself. Thank you, Lord. Now, friends, let's just take a little interlude here and uh, look at the history of Satan, shall we? Satan's stages of downfall. You know, he had a great start. He was the anointing cherub that 
covered the presence of God. He was perfect in beauty. But then he had an evil thought, just one thought. I want to be like the Most High. And instantly, out he went. It didn't drag on with courts of appeal for months and years, trust me. And Jesus saw it happen. He said, I beheld Satan like lightning fall from heaven. It was instantaneous. Now that's perfect justice. Human governments can't handle that. Watch how Jesus does it. Out he went, folks. That was his moral and spiritual fall. And perhaps 200 million demons fell with him. Jesus calls fallen angels demons. Okay? And then what happened? He experienced a second fall at the Genesis flood. Now this is not well known. And this is based on some inferences. Okay? We read in Second Peter and Jude that the angels that kept not their first estate but went after strange flesh, those specially wicked ones, are now confined in chains and pits of darkness until the judgment of the great day. Who are they? Those are the ones at the time of the flood who, according to Genesis 6, you remember, uh, took women and uh, I mean, they're the sons of God, B'nai Elohim, are, are angels who went after women and God, what? Confined them at the Genesis flood forever to the place of judgment. I mean, they have no further access to human beings. And when Jesus the Lord showed up 2,000 years ago, do you know what the other demons said to him who had not been cast down into the Tartarus pit? They said, we know who you are, you son of God. You've come to torment us before the time. Do not cast us into the abyss, the pit. They still have access. I mean, millions of demons. But others are gone. They're gone. Now, friends, here was the final blow. Jesus said, now is the prince of this world cast out. And here's Genesis 3.15. And he will crush the serpent's head. And that was Calvary's cross. Maybe Satan suspicious, was suspicion that something bad would happen to himself. And he told Peter to tell Jesus, what? Don't go to Jerusalem and die. And Jesus said to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. You say, well, if he was crushed at Calvary, then how come he's a roaring lion roaming around the world seeking whom he may devour? This is a deep mystery. I mean, did you know the Bible's full of difficult topics? He was judicially destroyed, but not actually he is doomed legally, see, but God gave him an extension of activity during the church age to test the saints. See, that, that's very hard. I mean, just like Job chapter 1, where Satan came to God and said, uh, and God said, have you seen my servant Job? And Satan, I mean, this is so awful, I hate to quote it. And Satan said to God, oh, Look, you've hedged him about. Look at all the things you've done for him. You just take away those things and he'll curse you to your face. Ouch. You know what I would do if I were writing the book of Job? I'd say God would say to him, look, I don't like you anymore. Kindly vanish forever. Now, why is Satan still here? Okay, the mystery of iniquity. Now, folks... Michael himself will have revenge on Satan someday in the middle of the 70th week of Daniel. He and his armies of righteous angels will be allowed by God to defeat Satan and his armies and cast them out of the third heaven where he has access. See, right now, 
Revelation 12 says Satan has access to the third heaven to do what? To accuse the brethren night and day. And he's right there now accusing you and me of all kinds of things for which we deserve an eternal hell. And the only answer Jesus can give him or needs to give him is what? Well, you're right, sir. He is really not a perfect person. And we only take perfect persons up here. But I died for him and I took his sin on myself and transferred my righteousness to him. Uh, goodbye. Now, you know, that's Zechariah chapter 3. Joshua, the high priest, was filthy. And Satan was there accusing him. And God said to him, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Out of here. And clothed him, you see, in fresh, clean garments representing what you and I wear in the sight of a holy God. By virtue of his merits through his blood. Well, that's not the end for Satan. He's cast down knowing his time is short and he has three and a half more years on this planet to empower the Antichrist, his human masterpiece, number two person in the, in the trinity of evil. And who's the second person? The Antichrist, the beast. And the third person is who? The false prophet who performs miracles. And transforms the statue of the Antichrist into a living being that will kill people who won't bow before it. Talk about satanic miracles. Like the ones, you know, that Pharaoh's henchmen did in the court of Egypt to oppose Moses and Aaron. And what were their names? Janus and Jambres. Hmm. Wow. Satan will have enormous power for the final three and a half years. That's why it is called the Great Tribulation. The Great and Dreadful Day of the Lord. Those three and a half final years. And Satan will almost take over the world. Jesus said, unless those days are shortened, no flesh will survive. See, thank you, Lord. I, I am a part of your bride and your body, and you're not going to allow me to suffer the wrath of man or the wrath of Satan or the wrath of God in that awful period of time. Thank you for the pre-tribulation rapture. I heard three saying amen. Think of it, friends. We're going to be gone before this happens. Then comes what? The second coming of Christ, the Armageddon encounter and Satan and all his demons and the Antichrist and the false prophet are cast down into the pit, the abysses. And there they will remain for a thousand years. But the amazing, amazing thing is that after a thousand years, Satan is going to be released again for a little time to test the nations who have been basking under the blessing of a perfect government, perfect economy, perfect environment for a thousand years. But many children are born, billions of people are born into the kingdom who've never really made a personal choice. And just like God had to do for Adam and Eve, he'll say, I'm going to give you a very, very credible choice alternative to me. And back comes Satan. And enormous masses of people follow him like sand of the sea for multitude. And finally what? Fire comes from heaven and devours them all and consumes planet Earth and the moon, the other eight planets, their moons, the sun, all the other stars and galaxies and the heavens and earth flee away from him who sits upon the throne. There'd be no place found for them. And Satan and the demons and those who never believe Jesus are consigned forever and ever 
to the lake of fire. And those who love Jesus and made a choice for him, yes, even in the presence of satanic alternatives, will be in God's heaven forever and ever. And I say, Lord, I, I just need help here. These are enormous things that are going on that I can't even see with my unaided eye. But through your precious word, these things come to light. And you give me understanding that I need to be effective for you and patient and gracious and loving and prayerful, knowing that apart from you, I can't do a thing. Help me, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Do you have questions about what you're hearing in this series, Biblical Apologetics? Please share your thoughts with us at facebook.com slash Ministries, and we'll try to respond and make use of your questions and comments. You can pass this message along to anyone at sermonaudio.com slash and point them to many additional resources at whitcomministries.org. I want to read a portion of Psalm 107 to you before we depart. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He sent out His word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of His deeds in songs of joy. Until next time, I'm Wayne Shepherd. Thanks for listening to Encounter God's Truth, where we teach every week that God's Word is true from the beginning to the end.